0: As we continue our look at the Austin capital environment, we turn to the newcomers to the region. Over the past 18 months, we've seen numerous VC firms either opening up offices here or an outright move. This influx of capital is one of the many drivers for why 2021 has been an historic year in Austin startup fundraising. These new firms are also increasing the reach of the Austin ecosystem. While based here, they're deploying capital around the globe. One such firm that has recently established a new presence in our region is HealthQuest Capital. And today we're speaking with the founder and managing partner, Garhang Kong. Garhang founded HealthQuest Capital in 2012 to improve people's lives through improving healthcare on a significant scale. His vision was to build a best-in-class team of the highest talent and integrity to work with outstanding entrepreneurs to transform healthcare through his high-growth companies while generating outsized risk-adjusted returns for investors. Garhang founded HealthQuest Capital in 2012 to improve people's lives through improving healthcare on a significant scale. His vision was to build a best-in-class team of the highest talent and integrity to work with outstanding entrepreneurs while generating outsized returns for investors. A physician, scientist, and engineer by training, Garhang has over two decades of experience investing in innovative healthcare companies with a long list of success, 25 IPOs and M&A exits. He's represented HealthQuest on numerous boards, including Austin's own Everly Health. Garhang's interest and in industry footprint are broad as he also serves on the board of LabCorp, Almera Sciences, Strongbridge, Be The Match, the Duke University Medical Center, and has served as chairman on nine boards. He's an Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellow, Kauffman Fellows Mentor, and a member of YPO. Garhang received undergraduate degrees in both chemical engineering and biological sciences from Stanford while on an athletic scholarship. He then earned an MD, PhD, and MBA from Duke University, graduating number one in his class in each instance. His early career included stints at GlaxoSmithKline, McKinsey, and a medical device startup, Therox, before joining InterSouth Partners and then Sophie Novo Investments. Garhang, welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Austin Next Podcast. Thanks,
2: uh, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it.
1: Tell us how you got started, both in in startups like Therox and then Venture Capital.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if I think about uh, the origins, uh, in some sense, turns out everybody in my family is a physician by training. Uh, I'm the only non-practicing MD in my family. Uh, so in some sense, getting a medical degree is a rite of passage. You can you can flip hamburgers or do whatever you want after you get your MD. Uh, and so I, I grew up in a family uh, focused on healthcare and medicine. And I really appreciate what my father uh, did, to be fair, what my wife does as well. And, and the opportunity to help patients in particular and, and having that sort of intimate relationship that physicians have with their patients, of course, knowing their medical conditions, but also knowing their family members and the, the names of all the kids and, and so forth. So growing up, I thought I would be a physician. Uh, But along the way, I thought, well, you know, I might have the opportunity to help more people uh, if I invented something. Uh, So instead of just seeing, call it 50,000 patients over the course of my medical career, I might invent something, whether it be a new device or drug or diagnostic uh, and have the opportunity to reach 50 million people. Uh, And so sort of the arc of my career, uh, you know, I was a bit of a professional student and, and got a few degrees along the way. But each one of those degrees. Brought me from medicine to science and engineering, ultimately into business. Uh, and so as I had the opportunity to, to start a company, I thought, well, maybe I, I can invent something or develop something that will really impact patients. And I was fortunate to do that a couple of times. Uh, and then I thought, well, why do one or two if you can partner with 50 companies? And so, uh, again, at each level, the opportunity to scale and, and impact more and more people although you don't know the individual names. Uh, so that's how I ended up on the business and entrepreneurship entrepreneurship side and, and ultimately on the investing side.
1: Great. Let's turn to HealthQuest. Tell me about the thesis of the company, what are the types of, of companies you back, and, and some of the exits, some of which are well-known here in Austin.
2: Sure. Uh, happy to, uh, to talk about that. Uh, so maybe from two dimensions. Uh, first, uh, if you will, the mission and the way we operate, uh, that is pretty clear, you know, we are focused on broadly improving people's lives through healthcare innovation. The second part of this course is we do it by working with best in class individuals. Uh, and then the third is we happen to be doing it by investing. We could be doing it in different ways. For us, it happens to be investing. And so when you get to that third point, the question is, what's the strategy? And again, in some sense, it's quite straightforward. Uh, We're focused on optimizing value in healthcare. Uh, And value in healthcare is defined as two things. One is better patient outcomes, and the other is better health economics, so cost-benefit, if you will. So our focus when we partner with innovative healthcare companies, we really ask, do the things that you do result in better patient outcomes or better health economics, or hopefully both? What that also means is that we are agnostic to the underlying modality. So we don't ask ourselves, is it this kind of company from a subsector of healthcare? We are happy to partner with medical device companies and diagnostic companies and digital health companies and tech and healthcare service companies, really anything in healthcare, as long as it results in better patient outcomes and better health economics. You know, Traditionally, a lot of firms categorize themselves as we do med tech, or we do biotech, or we do diagnostics. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different uh, approach. you know. From a stage point of view, I would say that the companies we partner with are all commercial stage companies. So we don't take what we consider to be binary, sort of regulatory, technical, sort of does it work risk. Uh, and we typically invest 30 or $40 million of equity per company. We can do as little as 15, we've gone as up uh, to 100. Uh, into companies. So there's a range in terms of sizing. And we have been privileged to partner with some fantastic uh, entrepreneurs and companies. Uh, Certainly, there's a company called Castle Biosciences based in Texas here that uh, is now publicly traded. And we are fortunate to partner with them very, very early. We were just talking about Everly Well, now Everly Health uh, here, uh, also in Austin. In fact, ironically, we've partnered with uh, several companies in the Central Texas area in the last couple of years, but in terms of overall outcomes, I'd say in the last year or two, uh, companies like Amwell, Palmonix, AviDro, all of which gone public, uh, and then earlier this year, uh, a couple of companies like Barty DX uh, and Biotheranostics were both uh, acquired by large corporate partners. So it's been a it's a really a really good time uh, for the companies that we've worked with, and and certainly a lot of hard work on their on their part.
1: But a lot of satisfaction on their part and yours to see them succeed. Yeah. It's been going on two years now since the pandemic first became a visible item and and began spreading around the world. And to say it's been disruptive is an understatement. We've seen some sectors absolutely grow and come onto their own. Some sectors have absolutely struggled just to survive. Um, How has HealthQuest adapted to what's going on? What's the change in your thesis and the change in in where you're investing due to the pandemic?
2: Great question. I'll I'll answer it two different ways. One is from a health quest as a firm, how have we changed? And ironically there, not much. Uh, And the reason why I bring that up is when we started the firm nine, 10 years ago at this point, we were already distributed. Uh, And so we had to distribute a model where we had partners in multiple locations by design. And so ironically, when the pandemic happened and everybody was trying to get used to virtual teamwork, we'd already been using Zoom for probably seven years. So from a day-to-day point of view, it actually did not affect how we operated. Now, of course, the companies that we partnered with, They did see an impact in terms of how they operated, especially if they had to go from in person to virtual. Uh, So, we did see some of that. But from the trends and how we think about investing, uh, I'd note a few things. One is, ironically, the trends are mostly the same in healthcare in terms of better patient outcomes, better health economics, adoption curves. What is different is the rate of adoption in terms of what's happened. And so, almost everything has been accelerated, uh, you know, the easy examples are telemedicine. Right, telemedicine has been around for 10 years, had a low adoption rate, but it's not that it didn't exist. COVID shows up and then the adoption for telemedicine ramps pretty dramatically. And to be fair, even today it's come down, but it's way higher than the previous baseline. You know, I'll give you another example, which are sort of connected devices, right? Those also existed before. But now people are much more focused on adopting uh, connected devices, both the providers and the patients. So, what we've seen is that it's a faster adoption, but not a different trend, uh, if you will. The other point I might make is that sort of an obvious statement, but healthcare is global uh, and sometimes more obvious than others. But COVID's a great example. You don't get to say, well, I only care about. Controlling it in the United States—it's a global phenomenon, and everybody needs to realize that. At least in this case, it's borderless, and so prevention and treatment needs to happen uh, across all populations. Uh, so that those, I think, factors definitely the case. Uh, and then there has been some I will call new trickle-down effects uh, of the pandemic. Uh, I'll just give you another example. You know, we were already short on physicians and nurses, and there's been tons of projections long before COVID about how we needed more healthcare workers. That's probably only exacerbated now, in part because some of our existing cohort have been burned out and they don't want to take on the additional risk. So there's been some of that uh, additional risk. Uh, and then I would say that uh, that's also resulted in a demand for what I'll call more gig worker type. Situations on-demand nursing, on-demand sort of opportunistic shifts, uh, and maybe just the last point uh, on this question is we've relearned the definition of elective. So I would tell you that prior to the pandemic, if you told us we were invested in a company that created a let's just say a, a valve for you know heart repair, almost. Any patient that you think needs to get their aortic or mitral valve repaired, you're thinking that's like not an elective surgery. That's actually an important thing that needs to happen. What we learned during COVID is unless you were going to die the next day, every procedure essentially got pushed back. Uh, And so not just heart valve replacements, forget about your hip replacement. That certainly didn't get done. Uh, And so we have thought really hard about what is truly, truly essential and critical in the definition of that, uh, because what we historically thought was bulletproof in terms of for sure, no matter what people are gonna get this done, because they have to get it done, COVID has actually taught us that there's actually a much smaller portion of those interventions that are truly considered uh, essential. So a few thoughts to consider.
0: I wanted to ask a question about the adoption curve, because I think it's interesting that historically, I'll say the the medical industry, uh, so the actual professional, the physicians, the hospitals, et cetera, have been extremely slow adopters of of new technology. And what I find interesting is as far as I've seen, the increase in say telehealth and connected devices, as you said, has all been really driven by the consumerization of health. It's the act it's the consumer-patient merge coming together and saying, Hey, I want this convenience. I want this. I mean, my own personal uh story we had an ear infection and uh, with my youngest and we've had gone through this many times and we were able to use, uh, I think it was Teladoc uh, through our insurance. And from the moment we signed on to the moment we had the, uh, the antibiotic in our hand was two hours. Why would I ever do anything different after that? You know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So that's a, a, that is a key point. I think that the consumer increasingly so is an important decision-maker in, in healthcare, right? If you think about the historic uh, major stakeholders, there was of course the payer and the provider. And in theory, the patient, the longer ago, certainly, for example, my father practiced, the way it went was the doctor says, this is what you should do. The insurance company says, okay, I'll pay for it. And then the patient says, whatever you say, doc. So, you know, that has completely changed. In fact, the consumer has, you know, really become much more involved with their own healthcare proactively. Part because I think consumers have gotten more educated. Part because of the way the reimbursement has gone. Right? You have these large deductibles. All of a sudden, people care how they're spending their money. And then I say this a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, sometimes it's gone a little bit too far. Uh, and I can tell you that you know my wife, who's a cardiac electrophysiologist, you know the days of you. You know the doctor saying do this, and the patient say okay, whatever you say are over. And you know now the the patients show up and they've done their internet search and said hey, this is what I want you to do. And in fact, we've gotten to the point where we have this coffee mug, which is kind of a joke, uh, and it says please do not confuse your Google search with my MD. So <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of back and forth there, but absolutely uh, the uh, consumers have really driven a lot of it, and I think now our companies have paid attention to it for a long, long time. Many of our companies thought that the physician was the customer. Uh, and now many of our companies have learned
0: that the patient is actually uh, a really important customer as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I agree that the pandemic accelerated that and it's interesting to see as we kind of keep going, I want to kind of circle back to your comment of you know you were not a lot has changed at HealthQuest in the way that you've done things you know you were already had a distributed model you know you have presence in the valley here in austin you know in florida how has that distributed model benefited your strategy
2: yeah so a few things one the kinds of companies that we are looking for are located in lots of different locations they're not necessarily only in the bay area or only in boston uh in fact We find really fantastic innovative healthcare businesses in lots of different locations, certainly in the central part of the country as well. So having a distributed team that works as a team though, so they're not running off doing separate activities, allows us to have much better coverage, if you will, of the country and looking at ideas and concepts, uh, especially when you're talking about innovation um, in in the private markets. Yeah, I'll confess even in our own situation, have you know, being in Austin, I can tell you that prior to that, we had never invested in a healthcare business in Austin. And now we've invested in three. Uh, and it's not that they weren't there, it's that we have now gotten connected. So, you know, I mentioned Everly Well and Everly Health, but we've also partnered with a company called 83 Bar, which is also based here in Austin uh, and another company here in Central Texas that's uh, ENT Specialty Partners. And I will tell you that uh, you know, they were, of course, findable a from the Bay Area of Florida, but we didn't find them uh, except for the fact that now we are here and we're spending a lot of time here. And so I think that having a presence in different locations that are innovative is actually a, is a benefit.
0: It, we live in the weird hybrid uh, world now, right? Well, a physical presence and we say the 20 minute rule is gone away because of Zoom, but then you just, like now physically being here. You have access to a lot more, and so it still kind of exists in how you think about the the distributed model. Do you see Austin and Central Texas? You know, you, you mentioned these companies that you've you've had um, you funded. Do you see a particular sweet spot uh, or sector here that is going to be uh, kind of what we're known for uh, in in this case in healthcare?
2: Yeah, I think I do. Um, when when I reflect on Obviously, having spent a lot of time in the Bay Area, as well as uh, increasing now uh, in Austin, and of course on the East Coast, the way I view Austin and have experienced, it is a bona fide tech hub uh, in terms of you know probably any area. From a healthcare point of view, though, it is more up and coming. And when you think about the subsectors of healthcare uh, and the timeframes attached to mat- maturation of businesses. And then you combine that with the inherent advantages in Austin on the tech side, I think that the areas that will come fastest uh, with respect to healthcare are going to be in, you know, digital health and AI applied applied to health and the connected devices uh, and tech-enabled healthcare services, maybe consumer-facing healthcare. Uh, You know, we actually have some interesting biotech companies here, uh, but those are the longest lead time in terms of maturation given the product development cycle. Uh, So if you ask me to look forward, I suspect that we will uh, continue to have success in this area in healthcare, but it will probably grow along the lines based on product uh, cycle, as well as the inherent advantages on the tech side that I think will contribute and bleed over into into healthcare. Um, I do think there's a lot of great investments being done on the biotech side uh, from an academic medical research point of view, as well as from a recruiting point of view. But if you start all of these businesses at the same time, the drug development one would just take the longest, anyways. So that's my hope. And, you know, to be fair, you know, we're going to try and contribute to that. Well,
0: and we'll obviously be charting our own path here in Austin and kind of different from other places. I mean, part of our thesis on Austin Next is that we don't want to be the next Silicon Valley. We want to be the first Austin. So yeah. given that you've spent a lot of time uh, in the Valley and in other places, how would you describe the differences between the two regions?
2: You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I happen to subscribe to is that Silicon Valley has been very successful, uh, and I don't think we should take anything away from it. It's a large ecosystem; it's very well established. Uh, you know, I know others have have gone out of their way to to discredit it. I, I think that there's a lot to like and respect about Silicon Valley. That said, I actually think Austin has the more vibrant, uh, sort of up and coming feel to the ecosystem. You know, people are more energized and. Excited, there's sort of a fresher feel, and I think people want to be part of something. And, and maybe in some sense, the Bay Area is so large uh, and maybe even so successful that the success of any company in the Bay Area almost doesn't matter to the Bay Area. Uh, you know, your neighbor can have a great outcome, good for them. It doesn't really matter to your business, and to be fair, it doesn't matter to the ecosystem. I think in Austin, there's enough critical mass. But the success, especially a real outlier success here in Austin matters, right? People are happy for this other company, not just because it's a tighter ecosystem, but also because it actually moves the water level, right? Where everybody can sort of participate in the halo of a successful Austin company, in particular in healthcare as healthcare is ramping. But I think across the board, and so I actually think that the feel is different from a energy and stage, I also think that the starting uh, material, uh, if you will, is, uh, is different because of different strengths uh, here in Austin. And, uh, you know, without overly, you know, trying to participate in a political discussion, I also think that the business sort of environment is quite friendly here uh, as well. So there, there's quite a bit of uh, nuance there. And I do think Austin, as it continues to grow and be successful, At whatever, you know, state it looks like in 20 years, it will not be the same as Silicon Valley. It'll be its own and will be our own ecosystem.
0: We seem to be hitting a major inflection point, at least I feel like it. We're now, the flywheels kind of move in. It's, you know, people, capital and companies are coming here because people, capital and companies are coming here. So that kind of creates a nice nice thing. And then we also see, we're starting to see kind of some of those crown jewels. Like as we record this, you know, recently Tesla announced that they were moving their headquarters here every week. It's another kind of large company. And so, as you said, like, there's a point now that Silicon Valley got so large and a little bit lost that all-for-one kind of mentality, right, because of the success. So, as we are hitting this inflection point and kind of reaching into starting to be almost a top tier, what are the learnings you think that we can take from the Valley, both successes and some of the challenges?
2: Yeah, uh, so what I would... I'd say is that, well, you know, Austin should, we should really embrace what's bringing the growth and success uh, to the city and to be fair, all the recognition and fanfare. And it's principally innovation, entrepreneurship, being open-minded, being business friendly. Uh, I think those are key attributes. I mean, the Valley actually has been great at fostering that also, but one of the issues I think that we should try and avoid uh, here in Austin is that the success there didn't actually happen to necessarily everybody, right? What happened is there was the tech sector in the Bay Area that was really successful. And if you were in that sector, then it was great. But if you were not in that sector and you happened to live there, it actually wasn't that great because everything got more expensive, the traffic got worse, You couldn't find certain services at reasonable prices. Uh, Everybody got pushed out, and now people are literally commuting an hour and a half or two each way to get into their work. So I do think that the success of the area will be primarily driven probably by this innovation and entrepreneurship and business-friendly atmosphere. But what we need to do is make sure it's part of the fabric of Austin holistically, not this separate sector within Austin that's super successful and has gone off because then you get this tension uh, between community members. And so I do think that this innovation ecosystem has to be part of the fabric of Austin as opposed to uh, you know a neighbor, uh, which also means that the innovation sector actually needs to participate in the community. Uh, and I think that that back and forth so that when the inevitable growth and success continue to happen, the whole area gets pulled up uh, as opposed to just a, a small group of it. And, and unfortunately in the Bay Area, there's there's a lot of tension now uh, because of the uh, you know disparities in some sense.
0: One of the things that I think really positions Austin well for to deal with that hurdle is, and this is something I was unaware of until living here, is the amazing manufacturing base that we have austin builds things and builds from you know non-technical things all the way to semiconductor chips rockets and you know electric vehicles and batteries and i think you know you hear some of the the opportunities that are available you know straight out of high school straight out of like you know a two-year college I, i think that becomes a really interesting opportunity to really, you know, lift all boats and really have all of the different sectors and all the different economic strata grow.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, and it's interesting, you know, when I have these conversations with, you know, friends who are looking at Austin or hearing about Austin, of course, they hear about the healthcare IT uh, activities, but they also love hearing that Yeti is, you know, headquartered here and they know about Yeti and it's a totally different kind of profile, uh, if you will, you know we talk about the fact that i guess now it's technically amazon but you know whole foods is started and i mean so there's a lot of ways to innovate and grow and build businesses that don't only require software engineers or whatnot to to come to town and to and to flourish and so i do think that that's a, a key component
0: yeah so rounding back to the capital scene itself i mean besides yourself uh we've seen sapphire eight vc briar capital i fly Bedrock, all set up offices here. And then in the last, you know, 18 months, KDT, Revival, Gigafund, Trust, uh, ATX Ventures, Sante, Live Oak, all raising new funds. And by my rough math, that's two and a half billion dollars of new capital floating around. How do you see the Austin funding environment changing with so much dry powder now?
2: Yeah, I think that um, one, you know, the opportunity for entrepreneurs to get funded locally is, is higher. Uh, I do think that uh, as with anything, the more capital, uh, the more companies, the more competition. So we will continue uh, to see that activity. I'll, I'll give you a small anecdote. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I was invited to a, a social dinner, but the, the group participants happen to be those who all manage their funds. Uh, I happen to be maybe one of two healthcare folks or something, but, you know, a lot of tech folks uh, and, uh, and other private equity. Uh, So, and this is pre pandemic. So the, the attendance was not gated by that, but it might've been 12, 13, 14 of us. I went to a similar event. Again, the definition was you essentially run a investment fund. I think the invite list was like 50 or 55. Uh, and, And it's because a lot of people have moved into town now. So just, the growth of capital, uh, as you pointed out, for resident firms who are raising new funds or those who are moving is significant, uh, and I do think that it will follow with more companies and, to be fair, more pricing pressure on the investors, which is good for the entrepreneurs. And so, you know, more and more will uh, will flourish. You know, the other part uh, is generically valuations are rising and generically liquidity is moving. Uh, I just think that Austin will not be unique, to, you know, separated from that. We're going to see it here uh, as well. It used to be everybody would lament that the same company in the Bay Area compared to anywhere else in the country would be twice as expensive uh, and uh, maybe no different than the housing. Uh, you know, that arbitrage is, is getting increasingly smaller because of the capital ecosystem here in, in Austin.
1: Clearly, that's a a great description of what the capital system looks like in Austin today. But it's clear that even though the capital is much more readily available here now, it's not alone in in defining the success of the Austin region and the Austin ecosystem. What do you see as the biggest challenges today here in Austin that that our ecosystem is facing?
2: Yeah, I think that the... uh... The you know the challenges, especially in the different areas of entrepreneurship and and growth, is usually the thing that is the least portable. Uh, So capital is highly portable; Uh, it will travel. Ironically, the technology uh, or the idea is portable. Uh, It's the people that's the hardest part. People are willing to move, and of course, lots of people are moving to Austin. But of those three components, it's the hardest. To move, and so I actually think that what we will benefit from in the next cycle, uh, but not fully yet, are are this crop of repeat entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, many of the companies that we're running into that we find interesting are being led by first time entrepreneurs. When you go to the Bay Area and you hear a pitch, the CEO says, "Well, I was at these other three logos, all of which you've heard of, uh, because they cycle through it." Maybe not so even the CEO, but just some sort of senior executive having multiple uh, turns at it. And I think what will happen is this family tree will happen, right? We'll have a successful company and then the top five or 10 executives will all leave after the success. And then they will all start their own companies and we'll have this generational uh, you know, exponential growth. But at least certainly in healthcare, we're probably at Gen 1 right now. Where lots of interest, lots of good raw materials, very few entrepreneurs saying I've done this multiple times. So I think that's one component uh, that's a challenge. But to be fair, I think we'll we'll get addressed over time. The other, which uh, you know everybody who lives in Austin knows about, is just the infrastructure. Uh, and and what's amazing is when we came here, everybody told me of oh, the. The traffic's terrible and, and everything. And of course, compared to the Bay Area, it's nothing. But I think that compared to those who lived uh, in Austin five or 10 years before, it's been dramatically uh, changed. Uh, so I suspect that that will only continue to you know be more pronounced uh, unless we're really aggressive about investing in the infrastructure uh, and again, integrating into the full community. Uh, and I think that those two... Uh, those two components will be, be important because at some point, if we end up like Silicon Valley in some of these components, then we'll get some low resistance and, uh, and ultimately outflow. Yeah, but I think those are a couple of things that we should consider.
1: Garhang, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. We'd like to end the discussion the way we do all of our podcasts. So Garhang, what's next, Austin?
2: Well, we touched on it. I'm excited about uh, Austin currently and and the future of Austin, in part because we're at this kind of Goldilocks moment. Uh, I hope we can extend it, but this Goldilocks moment of being large enough to have critical mass, uh, being attractive enough so that lots of really talented people want to be here, but not so big that we can't be in extended ecosystem family. Uh, so I actually think that Austin is going to go through this golden age. Maybe it's the next 20 years, plus or minus, where uh, we'll continue to, to grow and be this magnet for entrepreneurship and innovation. In my specific area of healthcare, uh, I actually think that Austin has a shot at being a healthcare uh, top tier uh, hub, if you will. And I think it will come from more of that uh, digital health, uh, tech-enabled healthcare service side, maybe ultimately AI-enabled drug development. And, uh, and I do think that uh, it'll be actually pretty glorious uh, next couple of decades. So that's uh, that's my hope for what's next.
1: Hang Kong, thank you so much. All the best to you and to the folks at HealthQuest Capital. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much.
2: Really appreciate it. Take care.
0: Take care. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.